0: Romans chapter 1, we're going to start in verse number 1. Verse 7 is really where we're going to spend our time, but for the sake of context, uh, we'll, uh, we'll start in verse number 1 and read through verse number 7 this morning. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of the holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom ye received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all nations, for His name, among whom ye are also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So many times when we write a letter to someone or maybe we send an email to somebody that we don't know, Now it's important to understand as Paul writes to the church at Rome here, he doesn't know these folks. He's never actually visited the church before. He's heard a lot of great things about them, as he says in verse number 8, hey, your faith is known throughout the whole world. He knew a lot of things about them. He wanted to go and visit. He actually said, hey, I'm going to try to come to you and visit so that I can be an encouragement to you and you can be an encouragement to me. Uh, We now know that Paul would never make that journey to the church at Rome to be able to worship with them. This is kind of all they would know of Paul is what he's written in this letter. And so, when Paul writes his letter to the church that he's never met before, he first of all starts off by introducing himself. Hey, I'm Paul. Verse number one, called to uh, to be a servant of Christ, a slave to Christ, called to be an apostle, and separated to the gospel of God. This is who I am. But it's interesting when you and I write a letter to someone, we might introduce ourselves. Hey, my name's Anthony King. I'm the pastor of who we call about his Church located in Honolulu, Hawaii. But kind of stops there and kind of gives our reason for writing. But Paul not only introduces himself. But he also introduces the church at Rome and tells them who they are. Isn't that unique? Like, I would never write a letter to Bob and say, Hey, Bob, I'm Anthony, pastor of who we call about his church, and here is who Bob is. I think Bob would be like, I I think I know who I am, right? But Paul is writing to them from the very beginning. Hey, before I write you this masterpiece of a letter, which is what the book of Romans is, I want you to get, first of all, who you are And so as he goes through this passage of scripture, he lays it down for him and tells him, hey, here's your, first of all, he says that you are loved of God. And again, everything that the church at Rome was is everything that we are as well. We are loved of God. Notice he uses that phrase there in verse number seven, beloved of God. Now, it's interesting to understand that, that God, who God is, first of all. First of all, God is love. Love is not something that God does. Love is who God is. It's not a character or trait of God. It's an attribute of God. God is love. Now, you and I have the capacity to love other people. The Bible says that we can love because God first loved us, but you and I are not characterized by love. That's not who we are, but love is who God is. It's inseparable. You can't take God and separate it from love because they're one in the same. The Bible would go one step deeper and say that you and I don't understand how to love unless we first understand the love of God. So not only are we loved by God, but notice what that phrase there—beloved. That's a little bit different than just being loved, being beloved. The, the word beloved kind of takes our relationship to the next level, deeper in our love, in God's love for us. Not only are we loved, God loves everyone. Uh, again, the Bible says that God is love. Again, the Bible says, for God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's John 3:16. says that God so loves the entire world. God loves sinners. Uh, God loves people who have rebelled against him. God loves atheists, people who don't even believe that he exists, which again, Romans chapter 1 is going to tell us that, that that's just not true at all. But again, God loves, has the capacity to love everyone. God loves those people who deny his existence. God loves those who rebel against him. But God has a special type of family love, a familial love for his children. We are beloved, it's a special kind of love. We use the, the term love very flippantly. For example, I could say that, that I love pizza, or I love the Lakers, or I love a, to go to the beach, which is a lie. Uh, but we, we use the term love very uh, you know, loosely in things. But we can say like, hey, I love you as my brother in Christ. I love you as my sister in Christ. But then there's a deeper love that I have that goes beyond my love for you, the type of love that I have for my children, the type of love that I have for my wife. Yes, I love you, but I love them on a different level. This idea of being beloved by God is God's love to another level deeper for His children, for those that belong to Him. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. And he that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. John would go on even further in First John to tell us that you and I don't even understand love without first understanding the love of God. I, I tell people when they have children that they'll understand God better when you have children because you understand unconditional love. Here you have this small, tiny human being who who wreaks havoc on your life, who keeps you up at night, uh, who, uh, you know, steals your sleep, steals your food. Uh, Again, you know, you're responsible for this person for food, clothing. They don't appreciate you at all. Uh, They're not thankful at all, but you choose to love them anyways. That's unconditional love, and that's the type of love that God has for us. And God displays his love for us through his grace, the word grace means undeserved or unmerited favor. You and I haven't done anything to be loved by God. He loves because he's gracious. Now again, we get messed up when we think that there's some inherent value that God sees something special in us. And if God could just chisel off all the rough edges of us, he could make us into something beautiful and perfect. Uh, that's the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says God sees nothing of any value in you other than he loves you. That's because he's gracious. He doesn't love you because you're lovable. I I fell in love with my wife because she was the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. She has a smile to this day that lights up an entire room. I loved her. She would come over. She would bake chocolate chip cookies, and she dropped them off while they were still warm. She came over. she, She, out of her pity for me, would do my laundry and clean my apartment. She would iron my uniforms. Like, I mean, I, I taught her how to to do military creases and like, man, my uniforms were like tight. And like I thought to myself, I love this woman, right? And so I professed my love to her and I said, I love you. You're the most lovable person I've ever met in my life. And like, how could anybody like know you and not love you? Like, wow. And sometimes we think that God's like that with us. Like God sees us and he's like, wow, you're so lovable. You're so sweet. God looks at us and says, you are so wretched. But I choose to love you anyways. That's the difference against, when we think of love as like this ooey-gooey, overpowering emotion that we have in the the pits of our stomach, like where we just want to sit and stare at somebody for a really long time. That's not love. That's infatuation. When I have premarital counseling with couples and prepare them for marriage, I, I sit down with them, session number one introduction. Why do you want to get married? And I always know, it's going to take a really, really long time and we might not even make it to the wedding altar. If the answer to why I want to get married is because every time I look at him, I can see forever. Every time I'm with him, like just the smell of his body wash like washes over me. It's just like, oh heavens, like it's not it's not going to work it's just not going to work you are not ready to be married it's just like that doesn't last you know like like i love her because she completes me like it's she's the puzzle piece that was missing my it's not going to work okay that that's not that's not love that's not marriage and you get married that'll last like 72 hours tops but after that you're toast okay like that's not love love is When this person gets on my last nerve and I want to try to smother them in their sleep, I will choose to love them and be gracious anyhow and want the best for them. That's love. And when God loves us, God loves selflessly. God extends to us his grace and his mercy. There's a beautiful word that's used again and again and again throughout the Psalms to describe God's love. And it's the word loving kindness it's it's a compound word loving and kindness together to describe god's tenderness his mercy towards us Psalm 42, verse number 8 says this, Yet the Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night His song shall be with me, in my prayer unto the God of my life. I love Psalm 42, verse number 8, because it says, During the daytime, I'm going to experience God's loving kindness, and at night, when everything's quiet, and it's dark outside, and I don't feel God's loving kindness, He's going to give me a song in my heart that's going to carry me until daytime. I love that, that God's loving kindness stays with me 24 hours a day. David sinned against Bathsheba and, and rebelled against God and got himself into wretched, wretched sin. Again, not only uh, was had an adulterous relationship with this woman, got her pregnant out of wedlock, tried to have her husband killed, couldn't get her husband killed, so he put his hus- her husband in the front of the battle, had him killed, was called out for his own sin by the prophet who says, hey, what would you do if there was a guy who uh, had like a whole bunch of sheep and he went and took one guy's sheep for himself? He said, that guy should be killed. He said, yeah, that's you. And David recognized his sinful condition. So David wrote Psalm 51, which is an absolute masterpiece of Repentance. David didn't come before God and say, hey, God, it's the king of Israel. Could you, like, help me out here? Could you hook me up? Could you turn a blind eye to what I've done wrong because I'm a man of such position and power? No, no. He starts off what, by saying, I have sinned against you. Psalm 51, he cries out for God's loving kindness. Again, when he sinned with Bathsheba, this is the psalm that he wrote. Psalm 51, One. have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Psalm 63.3 says, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Loving kindness, tender mercies, grace, again and again and again and again. And so God is gracious because he's loving. And because God is loving, he is gracious. And it, it... People don't like to think about this, but let me just tell you this. If you're a child of God, God has given you his grace, and he has given you his, again, that word grace, unmerited or undeserved favor. That word favorite is where we get our, that word favor is where we get our word favorite. That means that God gives you things that he doesn't give to everyone else. That's God's grace. You might say, well, that's really unfair that God would play favorites. No, his favor, his grace is available to anyone who would receive it. It's really simple. It's really simple. Become a child of God, and He will give you His favor. He'll do things for you that He doesn't do for everyone else. He'll give you and extend to you His grace. Unmerited, undeserved favor. Not based on who you and I are, but based on who God is. Psalm 69, verse number 16. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Again, you notice the psalmist, as he cries out for God's loving kindness and his mercy, he doesn't say, but yet remember the things that I've done. Hey, remember how good I am. He says to him, like, hey, I don't deserve this, but I need it. And that's God's grace, and God's willing to extend his grace and his loving kindness because he is love. That's who God is. You see, you and I are undeserving of God's loving kindness and grace. You know why? Because we've sinned against God. I've broken God's law, you've broken God's law, we have sinned. Uh, now, man is a sinner, that's who we are, it's built into our nature, it's woven into our DNA, we sin again and again, and we couldn't stop sinning if we wanted to, because we have a sin nature, the Bible tells us, we'll get to that in Romans chapter 5 one of these days. But you and I have sinned against God, and because of our sin, our sin has consequences. God can't, God is, is, is love, yes. God is also just, yes. And this is just a good teaching moment for you to help you understand. Anytime we emphasize one of God's attributes to the neglect of another attribute, we don't get a full picture of who God is. For example, if we say, God is love, God is love, God is love, God is love. Oh, you sinned against God, no problem. God is love, and his love covers your sin. Is that true? Yes, but that's not the full truth. God loves you so you can just stay the way that you are because God made you the way that you are and you're a broken mess, but God loves your broken mess. Yes, but that's not the whole story. God loves your broken mess, but he loves you too much to allow it to stay a broken mess. God loves you exactly where you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay exactly as you are. And that's important to understand when it comes to Christianity, you are more than welcome to come as you are, whosoever will may come. You don't clean up your act and come to Jesus, anybody can come to Jesus. So you're welcome to come as you are, but when it comes to biblical Christianity, you cannot stay as you are, you must change. And again, you say, well, that's not very nice. No, that's God's loving kindness. He loves you too much to allow you to stay in a broken system that doesn't work. But because God is love, he gives his grace, but when you reject his grace, God is also just, holy, and righteous, and someone must pay for your sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So if God is just, which he is, somebody has to die. The wages of sin is death, bottom line. Either you can die and pay for your sins by going to hell, or someone else can die and pay for you, but someone will have to die. Now, here's the the fact. I can't die for your sin. I can't. I have my own sin that must be paid. There's not a church in the world that could pay your sin debt. There's not enough religious works you could do to cover your sin because the wages of sin is not baptism. The wages of sin is death. So somebody has to die, and Jesus died for you. And here's the beautiful thing about God's love and God's grace. God's ultimate display of love was the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. You want God to show his love? God's love was shown by the sacrifice on the cross for my sins and for yours. And so Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sin so that we don't have to. Somebody's going to die. Either you or Jesus, take your pick. But someone has to die. And if you're like me and you say, well, I don't want to die and go to hell. And let me just tell you, anybody who says, well, I don't mind going to hell. It won't be that bad. You don't understand hell. Well, I got friends in hell. I can't wait to see them. You will not see your friends in hell and they do not want you there. But if you're willing to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And put your full faith and assurance in him. I believe that he's the only way to heaven. And put your full faith and assurance in that. I believe that he rose again the third day and I'm asking him to save me and forgive me in my sins. You could be saved or born again. Now again, it's not a matter of, uh, of, of what I think. It's not a matter of what does the Bible say. You can't be baptized enough to go to heaven. You can't go to church enough to go to heaven. The only way that you'll make it to heaven will be through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if you're trusting in anything other than Jesus to get you to heaven, you will miss it. And it doesn't matter if you miss it by six inches or six million miles, you're going to miss heaven. Now, again, some churches preach every single Sunday, hell, fire, damnation, preaching. One of my friends that that attends our church says, I grew up in a church that was hell, fire, and brimstone every single week. Man, you're going to split hell wide open. God's mad at you. He can't wait to pour out his wrath on you. And uh, where the worm dieth not and is not consumed, that's where you're going to be. And you're going to burn unless you turn. I said, that's necessary sometimes, okay? I said, but did he also talk about the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus and how God doesn't want anybody to die and go to hell? He goes, no, I never heard that at all. Okay, that's problematic. Because then again, we have elevated the justice of God and God's hatred of sin, which is a real thing, and we've denigrated the love of God. It's a, it's a, it's a balance. You've got to have Both. Will God judge sinners for their sin? No doubt about it, but he takes no pleasure, no joy in that because he's loving and gracious and kind. And so, friend, you need to know for sure that you've been saved, that you've been born again, not hope so, think so, or, or uh, I'll work it out when I get there. 1 John chapter 1, verse number 9, uh, 1 John five thirteen says this. These things have I written unto you that believe on the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, even to those that believe on the name of the Son of God. God doesn't want you to think, so he wants you to be certain. And So if you're here today and say, I don't know for sure that I'm saved, hang out after the service, I'd be more than happy to sit and open the Bible with you and show you how you can know for sure that you're saved. You can put your full faith and trust in Jesus alone. Because eternity is one of those things you can't like, well, I'm just going to hope it works out. There's no hope there. The only hope that you have is in Christ alone. And so that's the way that God shows his love towards us because here's the fact of the matter. True love always begs to be expressed. If you truly love someone, you have to show it. My wife and I, when we were dating, she wanted to make me cookies and and do my laundry, and I wanted to take her to to fancy dinners and and buy her gifts, and I wanted to make sure that everything was right. I always washed my car and always got a haircut before we went on a date every single time. Why? Because I wanted her to love me because I loved her. I wanted to express that in some way. The day that we got married, I made a commitment to her to to love her and take care of her every single day for the rest of my life, and I've kept that commitment, that vow that I made, because I love her fiercely. I can't just say, well, I told her the day we got married that, that I love her. Isn't that enough? No, she wants to see it. The fact that you can hear God loves you isn't enough. You need to see it, and God says, okay, I'll show you the best way I know how. Romans chapter five, verse number eight, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God says, the best demonstration I can show you how much I love you is to give you my son Jesus. Here he is, this is proof of my love for you. And so we're loved by God. God calls us his love beloved. That's a special title that he gives us. Secondly, we see in verse number seven, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. We see secondly in this passage, we're called to be saints. <laughs> now, depending on your church background and what you know about saints might uh, kind of change the way that you receive that statement. If you come from a church where the connotation of a saint is uh, Someone who uh, has done special works or special acts or someone who is uh, in stained glass somewhere. That's not a saint and that's not what we're called to. When Paul talks about saints, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse number 1, he writes to them and says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi. As he writes to the church at Rome here in verse number 7, he says them, called to be saints. Now, when it comes to Catholicism, Catholicism doesn't necessarily follow the Bible. If you were to read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is their doctrinal statement, it's a book about an inch and a half thick, you should, every, every Christian should read that to know what Catholicism truly believes. To read the, the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, they would say in their opening statements there that they place church history and the Word of God on equal footing to determine their belief structure. And so it doesn't matter if it's not found in the Bible, if it's the way that the church has always done it, it holds the same authority as Scripture. Now, we as Bible-believing Christians would say, God's Word is authoritative, everything else in the world is junk. It doesn't matter what you or I think about it, or the way that Grandma's church used to do it, what does the Bible say? It's authoritative. For Catholicism, they would put the Bible and church tradition uh, on equal footing as far as authoritative. The, the Pope also has the ability to speak in what's called ex cathedra, which means in Latin, from the chair. He speaks in place of Jesus Christ. So whatever the Pope says is on equal footing of Christ himself. Again, I'm, all this is found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. You should totally, every Christian should read it because it's it's a fascinating read. One of the things that the uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church lays out is how the, the Catholic Church determines saints. Uh, the, the process for becoming a saint is the first thing you have to do is you have to die. I don't like this step at all. Uh, but um, you have to be dead, first of all. There, there are no living saints according to, to Catholic tradition. Uh, and I believe after a period of 100 years, an inquiry of your life begins. Uh, and then they basically go through and begin to look at all the different uh, uh, things that have happened in your life. There has to be a proof of heroic virtue, things that you've done as they inquire about your life that uh, you 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 saved a bunch of kittens from a fire or something like that that has to be some heroic act that you performed. Now, uh, in Hawaii, there's a, a, a Catholic uh, father that was very revered, Father Damien, who basically uh, had taken a bunch of the, the lepers in Hawaii and had put them in a leper colony on the island of Molokai. Fascinating story, uh, and but he's not yet a saint because he hasn't gone through the process of becoming a saint, so he's just referred to as Father Damien. Lived a life of great virtue, did a lot of good works and things like that. Hasn't met the criteria for sainthood. Next thing they have to do is have to have at least two verified miracles of, of either raising somebody from the dead or somebody had gotten some serious sickness where they'd healed them from. And, but the, the miracles had to be verified. It couldn't be passed down or handed down or, or third hand. It has to be verified miracles. Then after that, the Pope ca- canonizes this person as a, as a saint uh, at the ceremony that takes place in the Vatican. And then this person is referred to as saint so-and-so and and things like that. And then, uh, you know, depending on, you know, your background and what this saint did, then you can pray to certain types of saints to get certain types of things. And this person is a patron saint of this or that or things along those lines. And so that's the process of sainthood. And typically when you find in, in artwork these people who have, uh, you know, their pictures, they'll usually have like a, a big white circle around their head, like a halo. That, those will be identify the fact that they're saints. Uh, oftentimes you'll see them uh, in stained glass with the, the big circle around their head that identifies them as saints. That's not a biblical idea of what it means to be a saint. And when Paul says, I'm calling the church at Rome to be saints, that's not what he's talking about. To be a biblical saint, there's one thing that you do. You must be born again. One step, that's it. So next, next slide here. Uh, how to become a biblical saint, be born again. Amen. What's the second step? There's no second step. That's it. And so I like this one because nobody has to die, right? <laughs> and so I, pre- I prefer this route, first of all, because it's biblical, second of all, because it doesn't require me to die. That's it. So when Paul talks about the saints uh, at Rome, he's talking about those who have been born again. It's important to note in the Bible we never find a single instance whatsoever where saints are revered or prayed to, not once. And so uh, when we look at Scripture, nobody prays to saints, nobody prays through saints, uh, anything along those lines. Uh, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 5, For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so again, we don't need to pray to someone, we don't need to pray through someone, Uh, we don't need to get saints to pray on our behalf or anything like that. Uh, We can pray directly to God through Jesus Christ alone. Uh, Again, according to uh, catholic.org, since saints led holy lives and are close to God in heaven, we feel that their prayers are particularly effective. We often ask particular saints to pray for us if we feel they have a particular interest in our problem. So again, Patron saint of uh, you know medical cases, they would pray to saint, so-and-so. For patron saints, who, uh, people who need help in finding their lost car keys. Uh, there's a patron saint of lost things, no lie. Uh, and they would pray to this particular saint. And again, the idea is I'm going to pray to them because they have closer proximity uh, to Jesus Christ than I do. Now, if we think through this logically, logically it makes sense. Uh, yesterday I had a friend trying to get in touch with me. They couldn't get me on my cell phone because I was in the... Uh, seminar that we had here yesterday. And so they called Trey and said, hey, uh, could you have, pastor, give me a call. And so Trey was in close proximity to, to me, so they called Trey so that Trey could get my attention. Logically, that makes sense. Biblically, it makes zero sense whatsoever that I have to go through some dead person to get to God. There's one mediator, and the mediator that we have is not a dead person, is Jesus Christ, who's very much alive. Amen. He's our mediator between us and, and God. Now, there is one case in the entire Bible of people trying to contact the dead. If you read the Old Testament, Saul uh, wanted to talk to Samuel, and he got the witch of Endor to conjure up his spirit so that he could talk to Samuel. And so basically, the only biblical instance that we have of anybody talking to anybody dead is witchcraft, which if you didn't know, is typically frowned upon in in the Bible. So it's not a, a biblical thing. Again, according to the catechism of the Catholic Church, a stronger claim, which is saints have to be honored and invoked, is that they constantly pray for our salvation and obtain for us the merits, by their merits, and influence many blessings from God. So again, because these dead people have lived really good lives, they have special access to God that you and I don't have. Now again, it asks a rhetorical question, which again might find some logical reasoning, but it's biblically bankrupt. If there's joy in heaven over the the conversion of one sinner... Will not the citizens of heaven assist those who repent? When they are invoked, will they not obtain for us, get this, the pardon for sins and the grace of God. So again, if I need to pray through someone else to have my sins forgiven, then I'm admitting the fact that Jesus is not enough. Jesus' death upon the cross is not enough for me. I can't pray to God with Christ as my advocate because that's not enough so we're effectively taking back the power from Jesus Christ and placing it on other people who may or may not not even have been Christians. And so again, we, we look at this and say, okay, that might make sense logically, but if you look at the Bible, that holds no bearing whatsoever. And again, last statement that from, comes from the catechism. We must also have recourse to the intercession of the saints who are in glory. That means to pray to the saints. That the saints... Are to be prayed to is a truth so firmly established in the church of God. When it talks about the church of God, it's not talking about a Bible-believing Christian church. It's talking about the Roman Catholic church. That no pious person can experience a shadow of doubt on the subject. In other words, there's no person who knows anything about Catholicism that says, you cannot pray to saints. And so, again, you talk to a Catholic, they say, oh, we don't pray to saints, we pray with them, or whatever the case. According to your doctrinal statement, you pray to saints, uh, because Jesus Christ is not enough. That's super problematic. I met with a man several years ago, um, and uh, he was, had gone to Catholic, uh, he was an altar boy in the Catholic church, he had gone to a Catholic elementary school, middle school, high school, Catholic college, just do new stuff. And so we're talking, uh, and I said, man, tell me why you guys pray to Mary. Well, we don't pray to Mary, we pray through Mary. Tell me what that means. Uh, And I said, why can't I just pray to Jesus? And no lie, here's just your explanation. He said, well, you know, if I asked you to do something for me and you wouldn't, maybe I could call your mom and your mom could talk you into it. (laughs) And I was like, no, you didn't. And he was like, yes, I did. And I was like, no, you didn't. And he was like, yes, I did. And I was just like, (laughs) what? Like, Jesus won't do what I tell him to do, so I'm going to call his mom? that that's really your thought process behind this oh she's the mother of the church no she's not she's the mother of god no she's not Uh, she has special access no she doesn't and again point back to the bible where does it say that well it's not found in scripture exactly and so again when we get the word saint we don't need to get hung up on that like oh that's a that's a word that means something that it doesn't here's the idea saints are the holy ones that's what the word means Greek word in the New Testament, hagios, which literally means the holy ones. These are the ones who live a life separate from sin. That's what the word saint means. And and please understand, if you come from a Catholic background, that wasn't a mockery of what they believe. It's just their, their own words of what they believe and how they don't line up with the Bible. And I always tell people, Catholics are not our enemies, okay? They're people who need to know the truth, and we need to love them and encourage them to the truth. And so if you ever get the idea or walk away from here thinking that I think that, that Catholics are the enemies, they're not. The, the Bible says that anyone who does not believe the truth of the gospel has been blinded by Satan. And so they're just people who need to be liberated to truth. They're not an enemy. They shouldn't be uh, treated unkindly or unfairly or anything like that. We just need to love them and point them to truth. And again, if, if they dig into the Bible, the Bible says if people search for God, they'll find him and they'll find him in the words of Scripture. It's not about me or you trying to to argue or or win anybody over. It's about the the truth being able to penetrate the, the depths of their heart. And so when we talk about the word saint, the word saint literally means the holy ones, which is supposed to be you and I. When we talk about Saints. The word saint means holy ones. Holy means separate from sin. So if sin is here, you and I that are saved or born again, that are called to be saints, are supposed to be over here. Now sometimes Christians want to say, well, "Well, how close can I get to the line without crossing over? I'm not trying to get close, close to the line. I'm trying to stay away from the line. To be separate from sin doesn't mean I get to dabble in it and play around with it a little bit. It means I'm separate from sin, and that's what we're called to be. But notice it's interesting here that we're called to be saints. We didn't have to be called to be sinners. We're already sinners. Nobody had to, ever had to tell us to sin. We're automatically sinners, so when we, we look at this, we're called to be saints, we didn't have to be called to be sinners. It's interesting. Uh, Psalm 30 I'm sorry, Psalm 58 verse number three says this: "The wicked are estranged from the womb. Get this. They go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. From the moment that you're born into this world, you have automatically become a sinner. From the moment of your first breath, you have become estranged," the Bible says, "from the womb." And here's the thing, we see this already, if any parents who've ever had children before, your baby, right? Your baby has a fresh diaper, it's eaten, it's swallowed in its favorite blanket, it's sat down in a quiet room where everybody's been told to shut up for, otherwise their life is at risk, and what do they do? They still continue to cry, right? There's nothing wrong with you. The only reason that you're crying is because you're a pagan little liar. <laughs> That's the only reason. You're a liar. There's nothing wrong with you. Stop acting like something's wrong because it's not. You're just a liar, okay? That's what the Bible says. They come forth from their mother's womb doing what? Speaking lies. But here's the thing. Do babies grow out of that phase of of sinnership that they're in? No, they don't. They continue to grow in until they get to be full-grown adults like us. And when we don't get our ways, you know what we do? We cry when nothing's wrong. We pitch a fit because we don't get our way. We get mad and we go outside and we kick rocks because life isn't fair, right? We manipulate situations even as adults to get what we want out of life, just like babies do, right? Have you ever seen like a baby like cry when everybody's looking and like the second you turn your back, they stop crying and you turn back around, they start crying again? you like, ah, it's like you're such a little manipulator, just, just wicked to the core you are, you know? We don't grow out of that. We continue in that because we're sinners. And look, you and I couldn't stop sinning if we wanted to. That's why, again, God doesn't just polish up the rough edges of you and I and and polish us up and make us shine a little bit and set us back where we are. He totally wipes us out and starts over from scratch. The Bible says, The old man has passed away. Behold, all things are become new that God makes new things. He doesn't fix broken things. He wipes them out and starts over and builds it better than it was before. And so when we're called to be saints, unfortunately, many times, people continue to live like sinners. Because here's the fact, fact. If you are truly biblically saved, your life should reflect it so that nobody really has to ask if you're saved or not. It's obvious by the way that you live. Sometimes when people join our church or here at call I ask them for their testimony of salvation. I already know that they're saved because of the way that they live their life and the way that they place their priorities, but I want to hear from their own lips when they confess Christ as Savior. Now, there's been people before who's like, oh, I don't really know when I got saved. I would, and by the way you're living, I would say you're probably not saved. Why? Because you either live as a sinner or you live as a saint. Now, it doesn't mean that every person who's living like a sinner isn't saved because many times Christians fall into sin. I hate that phrase, fall into sin. It's like you, you stepped in a puddle of water, like on accident. Christians are given over to sin. How about that? I choose to sin. Nobody ever falls into sin. Like, oh, I fell into this adulterous relationship. No, you didn't. You went seeking an adulterous relationship because you're an idiot. Uh, anyways, um, I forget where I was going with that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um falling into sin. We don't fall into sin. We choose sin. And sometimes Christians live in sin because they think it feels good. And the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. Please understand, the end thereof is death. So as a Christian, you can dabble in sin if you want to, but just know at some point you're going to have to pay the piper. And you can dabble in sin if you want to, but know whatever your soul craves is not found in that sin that you're chasing. And so unfortunately, many Christians, while they've been liberated from their sin, have chosen to go back and become bond slaves to their sin again. Romans chapter 6 outlines that perfectly for us. If that's you, Christian, knock it off. Live like a saint. You say, well, I don't think I could ever do that. We learned some, I learned something so good yesterday in our uh, emotional and mental wellness seminar. <laughs> Dr. Major said to us, start replacing in your vocabulary the word can't with the word won't. Oh, I can't forgive my wife. No, inside say, I won't forgive my wife. That's the truth of it. You can, you just choose not to. People say, oh, I can't live a committed Christian life. You can, you just don't want to. So why don't you say, I won't live a Christian life because it's not in my best interest. It's not what I want. It's not what makes me happy. So Christian, live like a saint, a holy one separated from the sin of this world. That's where the good life is found. By salvation, we've been called to be saints. If you've been saved, if you've been born again, you are a saint, now live like it. Bottom line. So, if we look at our life, and again, imagine like a, a, a gauge on a car. One side is sinner, one side is saint. Where would you say that your needle is? Unfortunately, I, I know many Christians who's they're pegged to the sinner side. You say that you're saved, but your lifestyle totally betrays you. You say that you follow God, but like Jesus says, you, you draw near to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. I know other Christians, who, man, their life is pegged on the opposite side of saint. They're living for Jesus, and if they're confronted with their sin, they confess it, they want to make it right, they want to live for God, they want other people to live for God. The fruit that's in their life, they want to share with other people, they want other people to walk with Jesus. Man, they're pegged the other direction. And then some people just kind of waver back and forth like a broken gauge. Like each day, you don't even know what you're going to get. God wants us to be consistently living righteous, holy lives. Because first of all, that honors and glorifies Him, which is what life is all about. Secondly, it's in your best interest to do so. God wants what's good for you, and it's good for you to follow His commandments. Final thought that we see in this passage. First of all, we see that we are loved, we're beloved. Next, we see that we're called to be saints. And finally, we see that we're ambassadors of grace and peace. Verse number seven, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my pet peeves is is pastors and preachers who always take Paul's statements of grace and peace and go, oh, that's Paul's way of just kind of like saying, hey, how's it going, before he gets into the good stuff. No, I don't think it is. I think he really wants to extend to these people an extra measure of God's grace and an extra measure of God's peace because they're going to need it. You and I need God's grace and peace. You know why? Because we live in a world that's anti-Christian. We live in a world for the first time ever that is living in a world of anti-truth. Like we don't even want to admit things that are true that have been true for all of life. I mean, take things like the, the, the gender debate. Why is there a debate in our very DNA, we can see male and female. That's it. There's not 38 different genders. Amen. And that's not up for debate. That's not, a, that's not a political statement. It's a biblical statement. God created them male and female. Created He them. Period. Done. You don't get the opportunity to switch or change or identify or call yourself something or anything like that. It is what it is. And look, at, in today's age, if you want to, to say that there are two genders, you're going to get hit with the misinformation label okay, fine. But it's interesting though that when the debate of abortion comes up that men are supposed to keep their mouth shut because men can't tell women what to do with their own body. Like, well, who defines men? If if I'm speaking on behalf of the unborn rights of a child, then I'm going to identify as female for that moment so I can (laughs) jump into the debate. What, you never seen a bearded woman before? Come on. But again, that's how chaotic our society has become so just know this if you decide to say i'm a bible believing christian and i'm not going to go along with the hogwash that passes as truth today people are going to be say you're a bigot you're a homophobe and put all kinds of other labels that you have on you and here's what you're going to need to make it through all of that grace and peace simple as that you see the antidote for offense is grace Anytime you get your feathers ruffled or somebody says something unkind or untrue about you, do you know what you're going to have to answer with? You're going to have to answer with a lot of grace. I think it's why Paul said, grace and peace be unto you. Because they lived in Rome, very hostile to Christianity. The Roman Empire was known for its sexual debauchery as well, not a lot different than the society we live in today. It was known for its mistreatment of certain type of people, not different from the society that we live in today. And so Paul says, "You're going to need a lot of a lot of grace." And so I want God's grace and peace to be upon your life. You know, when somebody says something about you that's untrue, you got a couple of different options. You can get bent out of shape and mad about it, or you can choose to extend grace. <laughs> Yesterday, uh, we were talking about anger uh, in our emotional and mental wellness seminar, and I was just transparent. I said, "Hey, you know, I struggle with anger sometimes. Like, but my anger's not outside. It's not explosive. Like, I don't." Kick stuff and throw chairs and slam doors and stuff like that. I just rage on the inside. Rage. I keep it together. You would never know it. I don't like turn red or or get mad or anything like that. But I just get like on fire inside. Just rage. And I, and I said, that's really unhealthy as well. Because again, we got we can't leave those feelings bottled up. because It's not healthy. And I said this. I was trying to be transparent and trying to help our, our people of our church. And I said, you know the. The, the root of that rage that I feel inside, you know it normally comes back to one particular sin? You know what that is? And everybody goes, pride! Like that. I was like, wow, okay. Like, <laughs> you don't have to attack me. Like, I'm trying to help you. you know, like, pride! And it's like, wow. This is what it feels like to be condemned. Okay. <laughs> Noted. But you know what pride in us wants to, to do? It wants to get even. It wants to settle the score. It wants to have that witty comeback. And all of my witty comebacks always come, like, in the shower, like, two hours later, like, oh, I should have said this. Like, oh, man, that would have been a good comeback, right? That's what pride wants to do. Pride wants to get even, wants to settle the score, wants to make things right by hurting someone else when we've been hurt. But you know what the antidote to that offense is? It's grace. Hey, you did me wrong. I choose to forgive. Hey, you trespassed against me. I've trespassed against plenty of other people, and they forgive me, so I choose to forgive you. And forgiveness is one of those things that I'm, I'm going to help you with this this morning. This will help somebody here, and I hope that it helps a lot of people. When you forgive someone, we sometimes feel like we're letting people off the hook. Like, No, no, no. They need to pay for what they've done. They need to feel the weight of, of my anger, my frustration with this. I don't, I don't want to forgive because that'll let them off. You're not letting them off of anything. Forgiveness isn't so much for them. First of all, it's because it's obedient to what God's called you to do. Secondly, it releases real estate in your heart and your head to be able to, to think on other things. Because when I harbor anger and bitterness and frustration towards someone, it doesn't hurt them. Chances are they've probably gone on with their life and don't even care anymore. But it eats me up inside. And I just can't afford that. And uh, so many times you just need to give grace. Hey, I'm just, I just choose to forgive. Uh, I'm not, that person maybe didn't ask for forgiveness. I choose to forgive anyways. Uh, take a look at what the, the Bible says on this. Um, uh, where am I I'm lost my place in my notes. Oh, Colossians chapter three, verse number 12. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Now again, elect means special position with God, holy and beloved. Those are two words we talked about today. Put on bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, also do ye. So I'm supposed to forgive the same way that I've been forgiven. Which means I forgive unconditionally 100% of the time. You say, well, they don't deserve it. I know that's why it's called, somebody help me. Grace. Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. I choose to forgive you even though what you've done is unforgivable. I choose to forgive you even though th- you never even asked for forgiveness have shown no repentance whatsoever I choose to forgive you anyways because it releases me of the baggage that I'm carrying around that I just can't carry anymore I remember I would read a uh, a book several years ago this this has been probably 8 or 9 years ago super helpful to me on forgiveness and things like that and and so uh, I needed to grow in that area there's somebody who had had really hard feelings towards and was angry with for years, and I, I thought I just need to let this go. One of the things is says, uh, maybe you need to call this person up and tell them that you've forgiven them. I thought I'm going to do that, and so I call and says, "Hey, it's been a while since we talked. I want you to know, like, what you did was super hurtful to me. I was fuming, angry about it for years, but I just decided that I, I didn't want to carry it anymore. And so I felt like it was important that I call you and let you know that I've forgiven you. Uh, I'm not upset with you any longer, and and I actually prayed for you today, uh, and I hope this kind of helps chart kind of a new path forward for us and there's a silence on the other end of the phone I thought to myself like this person's been moved by my compassion <laughs> forgiveness the speechless in the face of the grace that I've shown in this situation and they said you know um, thanks I guess I don't know that I've re- ever really done anything that I need your forgiveness for so this conversation is kind of awkward Oh, really? Let me roll up my sleeves right quick and let me tell you. And I was on the other end of the phone like, like, oh, now I'm offended for a different reason now. like. But then I thought to myself, this person didn't see how big of a person I was being by extending grace. This person didn't see how big of a person I am by being the first one to call. This person didn't see the grace that's being extended to them. And so now I'm upset. Why? Somebody want to help me with the sin? Pride. Pride. So guess what I had to do? Swallow that pride one more time and give what? Grace. That's okay, man. I don't want you to feel like you have to forgive me because I've already. I have to ask for forgiveness. Maybe we just process through that situation differently, and that's okay. I just want to let you know from my end everything's good. Okay. Um, thanks for calling. I guess and hung up. And I just said, I'm done. I can't carry that anymore. And I felt free. And so grace gives you the opportunity to live freely. I don't have to carry a backpack full of emotional baggage and garbage that's happened to me or that I've been complicit in even. I get to empty out that backpack and say, I'm free of that because I choose to extend grace. There's been times where people have said, come to me and say, hey, pastor, I just want you to know that so-and-so in our church said this about you. And I was just like, wow, um, I sure hope they didn't say that. No, no, I heard them saying that. Well, I'm sure there was a misunderstanding. Oh, there was no misunderstanding. Okay, fine, I'm trying to give grace here, okay? I'm just trying. And grace says, here's what, no, here's what love says. Love thinketh no evil. That's First Corinthians chapter 13. I can't imagine that you would purposely say something about someone who loves you and prays for you every day. And so whatever you said, whatever caused you to say that, I'm just going to give you a little bit of grace. Maybe you had a bad day. Maybe you were upset about something. Maybe I really did something wrong. Maybe I need to come to you and actually seek repentance and apologize. But until then, I'm just going to give you grace. Hey, maybe they had a bad day. Maybe they got some other stuff going on. Hey, maybe they're going through a lot themselves, and I just got to give grace because I can't hold a grudge. I can't can't hold back any ugly feelings because you and I as Christians, as saints, we need to become experts at extending grace. Experts like nobody can extend grace like I do. Hey, I forgive you. Not a big deal. No sweat. Move on. It's interesting. We want to keep short accounts with God, and we should. We should. Man, when you, when you sin against God, confess it, forsake it, move on, repent, move on. You shouldn't have a laundry list of all the wrong things you've done over the last six months that you haven't repented of. We talk about keeping short of counsel with God. But we need to keep short of counsel with man as well. I, look, no lie, if you ask me for $1 million to name somebody in this world that I hate, I can't think of anybody. I don't have space in my heart for hatred. I'll name your top five enemies. I couldn't name you one enemy that I have. I, I just I can't. I can name a dozen people that hate my guts. I can name 10 people that probably wish I was dead. But I don't have any enemies. I just don't because I've chosen to give grace. Does that make me a super Christian? No, that makes me a recipient of a gift that I didn't have before, which is the grace of God. And without that, I wouldn't have the ability or the capacity to extend grace to anyone else. We've got to be experts at that. Peace is really important in the life of a Christian because the antidote for confusion is peace. You see, the antidote for offense is grace, but the antidote for confusion is peace. It's often funny, sometimes we think of peace and we think of the antonym or the opposite of that word, Uh, uh, peace would be war, right? And so so for them to be peace, there has to be the absence of actual active conflict. That's not the case at all when it comes to life because how many of you know If you're sitting around waiting for everything to be okay, you're going to be waiting a long time. Because there's always something going on, isn't there? So how are we supposed to have peace in the middle of chaos? It's about wiping out confusion and being able to focus on truth. And so God's peace is the antidote for that confusion that comes to your life. Uh, James chapter 3, verse number 16. Again, anytime you see the word peace in the Bible, it's usually contrasted with the idea of Confusion. James 3.16, where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. First Corinthians 14.33, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the, here's that word, saints. So when we talk about the word peace, here's the, my definition of peace. You might come up with a better one, and I'd love to hear it. But my definition of peace is this. Biblical peace is a stillness in the depths of your soul that flows from obedience to God and rests in the sovereignty of God. Now, let's break down what that means. Peace means I've done everything that God has asked me to do, and I'm going to leave the outcome up to Him. And whatever happens is whatever happens. That's peace. Now, it's important to understand that some, I want to be really clear on this, sometimes you can have a feeling of peace when you have real biblical peace. And sometimes it's an emotion, but emotions are subjective, Again, sometimes, you know, the amount of, of, of emotion that I feel is dependent on how many cups of coffee I've had, you know. So we can't trust our emotions as, our, as the arbiter of peace. But true biblical peace comes from knowing that I've done exactly what God asked me to do. And whatever happens, I'm just totally leaving it up to him 100%. I remember when we were first starting Hui it turns nine years old this October. I remember as we were leading up to that grand opening uh, s- service that we had in October of 2013 had a lot of people that were praying for us around the nation, things like that. I would have probably two or three people a week call, and they'd say, like, hey, how many people are you expecting your first Sunday? (laughs) I got five, I know for sure. (laughs) My family, guaranteed, without fail, they'll be there. Um, Outside of that, I don't know. Well, what, what are you shooting for? I'm shooting for more than five, you know? Well, I know, but, like, how many do you want there? More than five, you know, really. Because here's the thing. We'd done all the work, and whatever came is whatever came, you know? We've never in the history of our church ever had a numerical goal, ever. Oh, we're going to have, you know, 200 on church this Sunday. We're going to have 300 on church this Sunday. Look, Easter Sunday, we had more than I would have ever dreamed of having for a goal. And again, just kind of a teaching moment for us as a church. Whenever you set a goal, you're setting yourself up for failure. Just know that. Let's say for Easter Sunday, we, we said, oh, we're going to have, you know, 375 people on Easter Sunday. We had like 480 we blew past that, so we realized that the goal that we had wasn't even really a, a goal to stretch for or strive for because it was easily attainable. What well, if we set a goal of 500, but we only had 480? Then we're disappointed because we didn't hit our goal. We're like, oh, we're only 20 people away. We should have worked harder. No, we should celebrate the fact that you know more than five people showed up. Praise God for that. So numerical goals always set yourself up for failure. Do the work and trust to God with the increase. It's a biblical, biblical principle that we find all throughout the Bible. And so you and I, in the midst of all the chaos of life, just do what God has asked you to do and leave the rest up to Him. That's how it works. That gives you peace. Now, important to note, you cannot have peace apart from walking with Jesus. Impossible. Because, get this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, somebody help me, peace. It only comes from the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, that's not true. I've had peace before and I wasn't even saved. You never had peace. You had a manufactured synthetic version of a feeling that gave you calm. Did you know that you can take drugs and feel peace? (laughs) Is it real peace? No. It's a feeling. It's an emotion. and emotions are subjective. Illustration, fake, synthetic, counterfeit peace. God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. Jonah gets on a boat and goes to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction of where God told him to go. He disobeyed God. God was not pleased, to say the least. God sends a massive storm to the point where everybody on the boat is freaking out, flipping out. Hey, if you've got a God to pray to, you need to pray to him right now because we're all going to die. And where is Jonah? Does anybody remember? Asleep in the bottom of the boat. Would you say that that's peace? I think so. If you can lay down and take a nap in a storm where everybody around you thinks that they're going to die and are praying to false gods and you're asleep, I think you got some level of, quote, peace, right? But was that peace from God? No, he was rebelling against God, but he had made up his own peace. Like, I want to strangle every man that's ever sat across from me and told me, I just have the peace of God about leaving my family. No, you don't. You do not have the peace of God for disobeying God ever. It doesn't work that way. Peace comes from obedience and peace comes from rest in the sovereignty of God that I can't do anything about this, but I trust God. February 21st, 2021. My daughter Mikili was in the hospital at, at Kapilani uh, Hospital. It was a Sunday morning. I had to preach two services, the 8 o'clock and the 10 o'clock service that day. My wife called me and said that they'd take her into the ICU at Kapilani. That she'd gone into septic shock, which if you don't know, septic shock is like the stage right before you die. It's the point where all of your organs are shutting down and everything's closing off because your body's getting ready to, to k- totally die. And so my daughter is at the brink of death. I couldn't be there anyways because they wouldn't allow two people in the room at the time. So one person there because of COVID. And so uh, I, I couldn't have been there. Anyways, so I stayed here and preached. We went up there. They had 17 different bags hanging on her IV tree there. They don't even know what's wrong with it. So she's got some massive infection. It's attacking her body. They don't know what it is, so they, they're throwing everything but the kitchen sink at it. And I sit there and look at my daughter, totally lifeless, totally unconscious, hooked up to all these different things. I don't even know what it is. Tons of doctors around and stuff like that. I stood there over her body, and I prayed. And I walked out in the hall, and my wife and I went down to the Cafeteria. We got a Starbucks. We sat on, on the, the lanai out there and we just talked. How's church? Oh, it was good. It was good. Here's what I preached about. Oh, that's good. Were you worried? No, not really. We just had a lot of peace. How can you have peace in that situation? What are we supposed to do? We prayed. And if God is sovereign, there's nothing I can do to change the outcome. Shit, best doctors in the world watching over every medicine possible they could put, they put on the tree. Like, what, what am I going to do? Go up there and cry? What good does that do? Go up there and feel sorry for myself? Go up there and question God? Go up there and get mad at God? What good does any of that do? None of it does any good. You just need to be obedient and trust God's sovereignty. That's what we did. And, dude, we had peace like a river. Can't explain it. That's why, again, the Bible tells you that God will give you a peace that passes all understanding. And you and I in the midst of chaos and confusion in the world that we live in and everything being dropped around us, we just need to come back to rest in the sovereignty of God. I got peace because I know who's in charge and I'm doing what he's asked me to do. Simple as that. You know, It's interesting in, in sports they say things like, you just got to trust the process. Yeah, That's not just a sports thing. It's a Christian life thing. Trust the process. But oftentimes, here's what happens. We don't do what God wants us to do. We rebel. And then we wonder why things don't work out in our favor. Because you haven't walked the process. You're doing the opposite of the process. You wonder why you have no peace in the depths of your soul. Because you're not being obedient. That's why. So, as the beloved of God... You're called to live a holy life that is separate from sin and your gaze should be trending towards the saint and away from the sinner and you get to be the ambassador to extend grace and extend peace to everyone that you meet because that's what's going to get us through this, grace and peace and a whole lot of it. If you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, if you died today and you're not 100% sure heaven is your home, please don't leave here today without knowing for certain that when you die, heaven's your home. It's not a hope so, think so, it's a no-so. If you don't know for sure, you're on your way to heaven, make sure today. For those of us that are called to be saints, let's live like it this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church Podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.